Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Bookwaves began in 1977 as a science fiction and fantasy genre program titled Probabilities on KPFA hosted by myself and by Lawrence Davidson, at that time the SF buyer for Cody's Bookstore in Berkeley. In 1979, we had a chance to interview Stephen King, who was on tour for his latest book, The Dead Zone. King was signing books at Dark Carnival Bookstore, which 35 years later is still in operation. So Lawrence and I trotted down with my portable tape deck and recorded an interview in the midst of a loud and crowded store. At the time, Stephen King was still getting his career going. His novel Carrie had become a film, and his other horror novels, Salem's Lot and The Shining, had become bestsellers. His fantasy novel, The Stand, was popular in the world of genre fiction, but had not yet established itself as the classic it later came to be. King had also published one collection of short fiction titled Night Shift. Being familiar with King's work, I carried the bulk of the interview, but Lawrence began by asking King a couple of questions about his work with magazine editor Robert Doc Lowndes. Lowndes began his career editing pulp magazines such as Future Science Fiction, Startling Mystery, The Magazine of Horror, and other titles in various genres. Lowndes published much of King's early short fiction. Shortly after the interview was recorded from cassette to reel to reel for editing, the original cassette was lost. This version has been remastered from a cassette copy of that edited tape. A transcript of the interview can be found in the book Feast of Fear, Conversations with Stephen King, and also in Macabre 2, Stephen King and Clive Barker. The recording has not been heard in at least 25 years. Lawrence's question regarding Doc Lowndes is lost to the ether, but we begin with King's response. He was one of the guys that I knew about who was publishing the sort of stuff that I wanted to do. I'd been submitting along to fantasy and science fiction and to fantastic and places like that, but Doc Lowndes gave me the first real encouragement. I also got some from the fellow who was editing fantasy and science fiction at that time, Avram Davidson, that's who it was. It was Avram Davidson. But Lowndes, I'd sent him a story, which later appeared in FNSF, oddly enough. It was rejected there by somebody, and it was called Night of the Tiger. And uh, he sent me a letter back and said, I think it's a a good piece, but it's too long, because they were doing a lot of reprints then. So I sent him some other stuff, and finally he published my first two short stories there. And I understand now he's the editor of Sexology, and he must be really old. It's kind of funny. Did he give you a lot of feedback on your stories? One of the things that he did that I thought was useful was on Night of the Tiger, he had blue-penciled the story, and he had surrounded uh, phrases and things. He'd say, this phrase is hack work, this phrase is trite, or whatever it was, and he was pointing this stuff out. And I thought I was, you know, at that point, Maine's answer to Shakespeare, and it was good to have things put in perspective, and he was good at that. I suspect a lot of the 
that he was the last of the really great pulp editors. Well, he bought a third story called The Float, which he never ran because the magazines, you know, went out of business. And neither of the stories, the first two stories, have ever been anthologized. Uh, the first one I wouldn't want to see anthologized. That was called The Glass Floor. And the second one uh, was a better story. And... Uh, was called the Reaper's Image, and that was a that was a pretty good story. I, I stand by that one, but the first one, he was very kind to have published it at all. I, I went on writing short stories, and I discovered the men's magazines as a market. Um, and what's odd about it is that I discovered the Great Key uh, in the in the early '70s, right through to '75. And what it was was that, that they were not interested basically in porno fiction. I'd never read any of the fiction in the men's magazines. I rarely bought them at all, but when I did, it certainly was not to read their fiction in enlightening articles. You know, I wanted to look at naked ladies. And I read some of this fiction, and I was really surprised because they were publishing westerns, they were publishing science fiction, they were publishing everything but sex, and, and women were even not mostly in, in the stories at all. So I published a lot of stories, in Cavalier and Dude and Gent, I published one in Adam that I wish was not under my real name, but it was, because that's a real sleazo magazine right out of here in sunny California. So basically I did that, and it kept you know bread on the table, and it kept the phone in the house, because we had two kids then, and I was teaching school, and we were really poor. But uh, I stand by most of those stories, and most of them are in Night Shift. There are two or three that are not, but most of them are. You know, I'm not the only writer in the history of the world that wrote for money instead of art, but sometimes the two of them come together. There's no reason why they have to be exclusive. Did you come by the idea of writing primarily horror or horror-related stories haphazardly, or was there some kind of rhyme or reason to it? There was no real rhyme or reason to it. First of all, I think that writers are made instead of born. I think that there are a lot of people beyond the number of people who become writers who have the talent to become writers, but... People, you know, underrate the amount of determination and work it takes to hone to the ability where you're good enough, you know, to be read in a kind of mass market way. So I think that writers are made and not born. But what you choose to write about, you know, is buried so deeply inside. It's like lodestones inside you. And sooner or later you come near something that you're supposed to be doing you know, with your life, and it's like a magnet, it, it attracts, it's like, it's like you take a, a nine-year-old boy, you know, and he's just sort of, you know, walking around, not doing too much, and maybe his mother or something takes him to a ballet, yeah. and he looks at that, and he says, that's fantastic, you know, no reason why, and then all of a sudden, you know, he says, I want to be a ballet dancer when I grow up, maybe one thing that's significant is that people ask me, why do you write it, you know, whereas, I don't think Louis L'Amour, who writes Westerns, has to answer that question, or even, you know, people who write a lot of stuff about sex or the law or something else. But this is one of those fields where, deep down inside, the question presupposes that if you write it, you must be really weird. Uh, and I am. <laughs> uh, what was the earliest horror thing that really attracted your attention when you were growing up? The first thing that I can remember, and I must have been no more than three at this time, was creeping out of my bedroom at night and hiding inside the darkened dining room while the people in the living room listened to an adaptation of Ray Bradbury's Mars is Heaven on Dimension X. Um, this is the one where 
they get up there and all their dead relatives are there. And they say, gee, come on up, sit on the porch. We'll make you lemonade afterwards. We're going to have some hamburgers and listen to the Yankees. And they have the Yankee game and all the dead Yankees are playing and they're having a great time. And they go to bed that night and this one guy wises up and he wakes up and he goes into the bedroom and their faces are changing and running and turning yellow and they've got knives and they're stabbing all the astronauts, which is what the Indians should have done. That's the first thing I remember. And then I went back and slept with my brother that night. I was so scared. The second thing I remember is going to the drive-in and seeing Creature from the Black Lagoon. And <laughs> and just, you know, sitting there and watching, you know, and the thing that really got to me was the Creature from the Black Lagoon was walling them up in the lagoon, you know. To me, he put sticks and things so that they couldn't get out again. And it's it's the reaction that people get to the works of Poe when they're older, you know. But I was only like four years old. He was walling them up. <laughs> and I said, I want to do that. I'm really scared. I want to make people as scared as I am. When you were growing up, when you got a little bit older, did you begin begin reading science fiction or did you Yeah, just... I read a lot. I read a lot of science fiction. But something has happened to science fiction that I don't understand now. And I can't really say what it is, but it's taken a kind of sociological term that I don't I don't fully follow. I date my drawing away from science fiction to the time when Robert Silverberg started to do his really serious work. And from that point on, I think that he was a, a kind of, uh, not a trend maker, but he, he's kind of a seminal writer in modern science fiction. To me, when, I, when somebody says Silverberg, I say early Silverberg or late, because the later Silverberg, to me, that's where I date people like uh, Thomas Dish, Larry Niven, uh, a lot of the people that I don't fully follow, Kate Wilhelm. Mm. Kate Wilhelm wrote a wonderful horror novel in the early 60s called The Clone. You know, that was wonderful. The other primary element beside horror, and I guess it's in line with horror, that occurs in all your fiction is telekinesis, psychic stuff, from Carrie to primarily Carrie uh, and I guess the Dead Zone. Mm. Uh, the stand is a little different. I want to get into that a little later. Was there any interest in that from, uh, let's say, a level of, gee, wouldn't it be nice to be psychic or I am psychic rather than merely as a tool to create horror? Mm. No, it's it's always been sort of a tool, but not to create horror, more to create the situation. Because, you see, I tend to see people's lives as this nice fabric that's full of holes. And, like, we walk along through our lives and those holes are there and you can fall into one anytime. Like, you could go out and cross the street and some guy could come along that was drunk out of his mind and kill you dead. And we don't think about that because we got this sort of selective perception, this tunnel vision that keeps us from thinking about it. You see what I mean? As far as the horror and the psychic go, I see them as two sides of the same street. The psychic stuff, to me, is, is more realistic only because most people believe there is such a thing as telepathy, you know, that you catch a thought from time to time, although it doesn't seem to be a controllable function. Whereas the other side of the street, the real horror, the stuff like Salem's Lot or The Shining, to me, what that is, is taking people and saying, let's take people that are real people and put them in the context of a situation that's just so incredible that it's beyond belief and let's see what they do and also let's see let me see if I can make the reader believe it and for me it's a game you know the idea is to take the people put them in the situation the way that you put lab rats in a you know a different environment and see what happens but the basic object in view is always to 
engage the reader, which is what the suspense novel is supposed to do, and that's what the horror novel is. But it's suspense raised. You know, it's the difference between methadone and heroin to me. It's the real stuff. What strikes me in, in line with that is the juxtaposition in your books of the mundane. You try to bring in the America as we know it, for example. The stand is very full of that, where it's almost like everyday life yeah. goes on and then kind of gets shot. And you do that to a lesser degree in the other books. Mm -hmm. I guess you intend to make all that detail kind of counterpoint to the horror. Yeah. Not only counterpoint to horror, but to try and give the situation enough reality so that people will be taken in to the story. Because, like, when you take a story of horror, there's a hymn that runs through it, or maybe a scene would be a better word. And it doesn't matter who the writer is, no matter how finely you sew, the hymn or the seam always shows up. And my idea is that somehow you have to take the reader across that and still make them believe. A reader will say, all right, I'll suspend my disbelief. But to a certain point, that's okay. And then beyond that, you know, if the story is not working on the realistic level, it won't work on any other level either. Is that one of your reasons for bringing in a lot of real characters into into the dead zone, like Jimmy Carter? Well, that was just, you know, the book spans the 70s. It's It uh, starts in October of 1970 with uh, Nixon president and Vietnam going on. And, uh, you know, all of this is, is happening. And it ends, the last real event that's mentioned is the, the, the Jonestown thing, where all the people committed suicide. And my idea was, let's bring as much, as many real people into the story that would have exact you know, actually existed in that period as possible. And I tried not just to, just to bring in Jimmy Carter, you know, who's Johnny Smith shakes hands with him in, in New Hampshire during the primary, but also the, like Cassie Mackin, who was a correspondent on the nightly news on NBC at that time, is in the book, and uh, a guy named George Herman, who was a correspondent for CBS at the same time, and to try to bring in the little things as well. One of the ways that Johnny Smith knows it he's been out for four and a half years in this coma is because the doctor has a flare pen and they weren't in general, you know, distribution in 1970. Did you actually um, do any research to figure out exactly what did and didn't exist? I did some. Oddly enough, one of the things that, that I didn't remember and I had to look up was who died when because one of the things that Johnny says he's done when he comes out of the coma is to get a pile of Newsweeks and go through the obituaries to see who died. And like Janis Joplin died, Jimi Hendrix died. In Night Shift, you talk a lot about horror stories. What do you think makes a good horror story? Well, it has to appeal to fears that are general. That's the major thing. It has to appeal to the fear of death, the fear of closed-in spaces, the fear of something that's so radically different from humanity as we know it, that people simply recoil in, in horror, like spiders or rats or something like that. There are certain creatures. But it has to be something that's recognizable. I mean, you can't just say, to me, the big thing about Lovecraft is that what he continually seems to say is, it's so horrible that if I describe it to you, it will drive you insane, so I won't describe it to you. And to me, that's like saying, well, something happened and it was really sexy. Oh, my God, was it sexy? You would simply, oh, you if, if you knew, you would just 
probably run out on the street raving, but I can't tell you what it was because I don't want you to do that. It's tantalizing without, you know, actually going the extra step, um, which leads the, the, the reader to eventually say to himself, well, Lovecraft was saying this because he simply was bluffing and he didn't know what it was that was horrible. So I think that you have to go the step and say what it is and you risk and I've been criticized on this, too, that when the horror is finally revealed, it's not as horrible as you thought it was. But that's always the case, and that's why the horror novel always ultimately fails. Because when you describe what it is, you throw light on it. You know, it's like a little kid in his room, and he sees this shadow on the wall, and he says, Oh, my God, it's Jack the Ripper, right? And then his mother turns on the light, and the shadow is the shadow of a box of toys or a pile of books or something. That's why it seems that it's more the shock that moment of ambiguity that's the most important thing yeah but i'm i'm not that intellectual about it you know terror is the best of emotions the best of the low emotions that's what poe said and i think he's right and if if i can get terror i will but if not i'll go to horror and if i can't succeed on the level of horror i'll try to gross people out i that's one of the things about the literature that i believe the most strongly is that you go for the effect if you're not willing to go for the throat you are you ought not to be in the business in Dead Zone, you seem to veer a little bit away from horror and more toward suspense. I'm not sure if that moment, those moments in uh, Dead Zone where John Smith sees what the future is going to be are necessarily, are horror necessarily. No. So much as just setting mm -hmm. up the next step, which will be what is he going to do. Yeah, yeah. But what I really think is that effect follows story story does not follow effect. That is, you can't sit down and say, I'm going to write a horror novel now. What will I write about? What you have to say is, I got an idea for a story. And then you write it down and see what kind of an effect it had. I will not deliberately sit down and say, okay, people like Carrie, Salem's Lots of Shining. So the next book will be a horror. I'm yeah. going to write what I need to write, because if you don't, that's when you start to lie. At the end of the stand the stand happens and there's a resolution which i'm not going to give away here and the same with dead zone did you know prior to getting to both points uh particularly in in the stand there's a climax moment in las vegas mm -hmm. and in the dead That's zone when tom jones comes on stage <laughs> well some little joke there it all comes down to that one little room in uh, where uh, the politician is speaking in the dead zone, mm -hmm. and an event happens. In both cases, and in Carrie, it comes down to standing at the, at the prom. Do you intend, do you know where you're going to go from there, or at that moment, when you're writing it, did you make the decision? You know what the climax is going to be, but you don't know what's going to happen. You see what I mean? You know that you're going toward that place. Oh, yeah, I know and that. And you know who's going to be there. Generally speaking, you know who's going to be there, but you don't really know what the characters are going to do, okay. for sure. Um, let me give you an example. The, this book that I'm just working on, um, I've gotten finally to the climax of the book, to that final scene. And I knew um, from the beginning that uh, this, well, I don't want to give away the plot of the book, but there's a fellow involved... Uh, who's done a really terrible thing, and he realizes after it's too late that what he's done is set a chain of events in motion. You know, they're just terrible things from beyond the grave that he's let loose. 
with the best of possible intentions, and I knew it was going to come down finally to a confrontation between himself and these forces, but I thought that the man's wife and children would be safely away, and as it turned out, uh, his wife came back. Now, she did that on her own. I, I didn't make her come back. I didn't say she will come back. She just ran back. Because characters get away sometimes, and they start to go on their own. And all you can do is hope that they will go in a place that won't make the book too uncomfortable for you. So you don't always know what's going to happen. Well, in The Stand, did you, did you anticipate what The Stand would be? I mean, other than that they would no, all get together? Uh, well, I did, comfortably before the end of the book. But I wasn't sure what The Stand was going to be until I was about three-quarters of the way through the book. Who is Randall Flagg? Randall Flagg, to me, is everything that I know of in the last 20 years that's really bad, or maybe even since Hitler. Um, he's mostly Charlie Starkweather, who I was afraid of when I was a kid. You know, I read the stories about Charlie Starkweather and his killing spree, and I was really terrified by what he was doing. And He's partially uh, Charles Manson, and he's partially Charles Whitman, the Texas Tower killer, and Richard Speck, and all these people. And the thing that impresses over and over again is that these people are really stupid, and that something goes into them, you know, whether it's the devil or Satan or whatever it is, it goes into them. And then these people get caught, and that thing flies away, and you have somebody who says, well, I don't know what I did. Jeez, I don't know. Yeah. Did you do it? Yeah, 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 I did it. Well, why did you do it? I don't know, you know, it's, I don't know why I did it, because they don't, see, something got into them, it's, it's, it's like, it's like Lyndon Johnson, you know, when he was running the war in Vietnam, yeah. that man was possessed of the devil, Satan was in that man, and then he came on TV, and he said, I'm not going to run for re-election, you know, and it was in 68, and I saw the devil go out of that man, and he just turned into this old guy, and somebody interviewed him, you know, shortly before he died, and, and she said, Lyndon, why did you do that? You knew that you couldn't win over there without using nuclear weapons or something like that. He was in bed. He'd had his gallbladder out. He was dying of congestive heart failure or something. He had the sheet pulled up to his chin. And she said, why did you do that? He said, I don't know. Just like that, because it was out of him. But see, it gets India. And that's what's in Randall Flagg. And toward the end of the, the stand, it leaves him. Whatever it is, it's leaving him a little at a time, and he's just nobody. Do you believe in the devil? I have a view of the devil. I do, but my view of what he is is so complex that I don't think that I could express it in words. Maybe I will when I'm... Do you believe in an absolute good and an absolute evil? Next question, please. What kind of research did you do on assassins? <laughs> <laughs> what kind of research did I do on assassins? I didn't do any. You know, everybody, I, nothing that isn't common knowledge. What kind of research did you do on psychics? Oh, I read about psychics. Psychics kind of fascinate me. You know, people like Kirkos and Edgar Cayce and, and people like that. I, I tend to believe that a lot of what goes on in the psychic world, well, let's put it this way, that most of it is either the work of knowing charlatans or people who are um, being misled by their own needs, their own psychological makeup. But some of it defies that, that easy explanation. So I, I'm, a, I, I'm an agnostic who leans toward belief. You've had movies made of, I guess, one of three of your novels. But I've only seen one. 
You've only seen Carrie. Well, what did you think of it? I like Carrie. I thought Carrie was good. You've put it in in context, particularly if you if you've read a lot in this field, in the fantasy field. Uh, um, back in the days of the silence, they made a picture out of A. Merritt's Seven Footprints to Satan, and it's written in one of Forey Ackerman's books that when Merritt saw it, he wept. <laughs> and that would be a standard reaction, I think, among most writers of fantasy whose books have been adapted for the for the films. Look at what happened to Zelazny's Damnation Alley, yeah. for instance, and that there are other examples as well. But I think that I was treated well in Carrie the way that, uh, for instance, Fritz Leiber was treated well in Conjure Wife. You know, there are exceptions to the rule. I'm hopeful for the other two. Um, Salem's Lot's going to be a miniseries on CBS, and I'm hoping it will be good. I've read the script, and the script is good. The stars are good, but still, it's TV, and it makes me nervous. And, of course, Kubrick's doing The Shining, and I hope for good things. What was your reaction when you found out that it was Kubrick doing The Shining? I didn't have one. None? No. And the man's got to do something. My feeling is that Kubrick is one of the greatest American directors around. Well, so. I think that I think that too. I think he's a, I think he's a genius, and there are only about three in in the business where most directors are have good visual eyes and they're intellectually pinheads. And Kubrick is not that. He's not a pinhead, but also, I don't have any reaction to him doing the book primarily because I don't believe he has any real reaction to my work. It's a question of having read the book and saying, we can do certain things with this. Well, it's been so long, too. You know, I got to be a, a big hit with my friends. Uh, you know, I would just casually toss in at the cocktail party, by the way, Kubrick's doing my new book, and, oh, really? You know, so it, yeah, I was quite a hit there for a while, but two years have gone by, and people say now, is it ever going to come? Yeah, where is it? <laughs> Apocalypse later. What are you working on now? Oh, just a book. If you say much, you, you jinx it, I think. Dance Macabre? That's what I'm working on. It's a nonfiction book about horror in America, in the media, from, say, 1950 to the present. Well, why we like it, and stuff like that. A couple of quick questions which will probably be answered in that book. What do you think is the greatest horror movie of all time? What do I think is the greatest horror movie of all time? Well, let me let me answer you this way. Let, let me give you about five names, okay? Sure. I think that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of them. And I think uh, Night of the Living Dead is probably one of them. And Freaks by Todd Browning is probably one of them. Um, the Cat People by Val Luton. The Original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And I'm probably leaving some out. I think that Psycho, Frenzy, Dementia 13, which was Francis Coppola's first picture. What about Alien? I think Alien's very good, but I don't think it's one of the best of all time. It but might be with the cut 11 minutes restored. The Haunting, yeah, that's another one. Uh, what about books? The best horror novel I've read in about... Well, I like Peter Straub's ghost story very much. I think that that's a good one. But the best horror novel that I've read in about the last three years is uh, Anne Rivers Siddons' book, The House Next Door. You've been listening to a 1979 interview with Stephen King, who was then on tour for his novel, The Dead Zone. His next book was not the novel he describes in the interview, but rather Firestarter, 
followed by Cujo and Christine. My co-host was the late Lawrence Davidson. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>